Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Another recording in progress. Another Thank week you. has passed. Thank good goodness. Morning, good afternoon. Good evening. And good middle of the night to, to you. All our, to all our listeners, no matter where you are who are listening, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Birthing Instincts podcast. I don't know why. Whenever I say good, good middle of the night, I want to I want to say it like Dracula. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, and I want I wanted to say it like Truman. We're so, so weird. Anyways, moving well, on. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. All right. Or at least some of our listeners know what I'm talking about. So you had a couple of births. I know. Tell us what it was like for you. Yeah. Uh, Well, yes. It was interesting because um, Tanya, my potential partner up here in San Luis Obispo, um, she was like, I'll lead the first one. And then I want you to lead the second one. And I was like, I don't know why. I was like, felt like I was going to be on the spot or something. It was weird. Um, But so I said, okay, fine. Sure. Yeah. And then I just realized that I, <clears throat> I was worried about like, I might say something that she might not normally say to her clients. And I'm so protective of, of the way that my relationship is with my clients. Um, and then I just was like, I'm just going to do my thing. And if it's, you know, whatever, if it's a good fit, it's a good fit. Right. It's kind of like dating. It's so funny. Gotta be um, yourself. You gotta be yourself because of you, course. you can't keep up a facade forever. Well, especially with birth, I can't because I get into this very deep, sacred place when I am the primary. So yeah, there's no, there's no, uh, yeah, there's no foolery around with that. So, um, it was a, uh, multip, it was her third baby. And what happens with third babies too? They come fast. No. (laughs) Oh, they don't come fast. Third babies are a wild card. So second babies usually come faster than the first, but third babies, like it could be something we expect and it could be something totally not what we expect. Third babies are always like that. So this mom had always had her water break before her due date. Um, She had super fast labors. Her longest labor had been six hours. So we expected it was going to be fast. Um, So we went over there in the middle of the night and her contractions petered out. We were there for maybe, I don't know, four or five hours. And then we decided to leave, which is always really hard with a multip because you know, their water breaks or it just goes. But I followed Tanya's lead on that because she has been practicing longer than me. And she was like, we're going to go home. So went home, got a couple solid hours of sleep. She called back and said, okay, she's having bloody show and she's having contractions every couple of minutes. She sent her student ahead. And I hauled ass down the road. It was about a 35 minute drive. Um, luckily I had no uh, fog this time and um, get there. And we were there. Let's see, we arrived at eight and the baby was born at one thirty. So we still had many hours to go. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was beautiful. Her mom was there. Her sister had just had a birth with another local midwife. So she had, a, she had her three month old there. The mom had two um, children, her husband, her mom was there. And then her grandmother came and her mom and grandmother were a little nervous. And so 
Tanya and I were like, is this going to affect the energy? And, you know, is that why she's going longer? And we were talking about maybe clearing out the room. And, but there was this moment when her grandmother came and she was in the water laboring so beautifully. And her mom was like caring for her and nurturing her. And her sister was holding her baby and her grandmother was there. And we were all, there was like seven women like crying in the room because it was just so beautiful, you know, and so healing. Her grandmother had never seen a live birth. That's what they said. I didn't get into the story, which means that she probably was put under for her deliveries. Yeah, probably Um, probably had ether and forceps. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just that stuff, you know, and and to be honest, and I haven't talked to Tanya about this yet, and she's a listener, but I'm sure I'll talk to her before it's released. Um, I had several moments because it was such a beautiful, intimate family experience where, of course, I thought about Sky, And I thought about that. I'll never get to see her deliver, you know, know. comes up to me sometimes. And it was this beautiful process, though, where I went like I got emotional and I went deep inside and I asked God to, you know, bring me into this present moment. And just had so much gratitude for the work that I get to do, for the honor and the privilege that it is to be able to do this work. Even though I have these emotional moments, I would much rather be there in a birth room, feeling all my feelings and getting to do what I get to do than becoming a waitress or something, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, So it was a deep experience for me. The birth ended up being absolutely beautiful. The mom was perfect. The baby was perfect. Both babies, though, interestingly enough, had double nuchal cords, both of them, the one that Tanya managed and the one that I managed. So I don't know what that is, but that was interesting to note. Um, That's a cesarean section in many parts of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And she would have, she would have gotten augmented. I guarantee you if she had been a hospital birth mom and she had gone in with her history, she might've been six centimeters or something. She would have stayed in the hospital. And then they would have been like, your contractions are petering out. We need to give you Pitocin for a hundred percent. She would have been augmented. A hundred percent. I mean, 20 years ago, I would have done it that way. So yeah. uh, Yeah. So I I want to just say something about what you just said. And of course, we all miss her, but nobody misses her like you miss her. But I, I knew that this something had happened because I follow your story. And you put up one picture. And I don't remember what the caption was on the picture, but I knew you were talking about Sky. Oh, yeah. You go back and look at you know, it. Because you know me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how many people knew that, but I knew that that was for yeah. Sky. Yeah. So anyway. Um, it's good to be back in. That's the bottom line. I'm glad for you. And and just quickly, um, we have a guest that's waiting and very excited to bring her on in a second. You're going to introduce her. I've just got two quick things. One's a quick follow-up and there may be another follow-up if you can remember what it was. But one was, uh, was there any treatment for CMV um, in when women catch it while they're pregnant? Is there any treatment for the mom? We talked about CMV a couple podcasts ago. And uh, the answer is no, there really isn't um, any real treatment for that because most, a lot of women who get CMV don't even know they have it. And even if they knew they had it, there's not much you can do about it. You can test ahead of time uh, during pregnancy. You could test or pre-pregnancy. You can test for CMV antibodies, just like you can test for Epstein-Barr or parvovirus B19, which are also these sort of weird children infections that if you get while you're pregnant could be a problem. But there is no 
real treatment um, for CMV uh, to prevent congenital CMV if mom gets it. So the treatment is prevention. Well, I think it's good to know if you have had it because the recommendation from our listener was to not share spoons and to not kiss your toddler on the, on the mouth. And that's hard as a mama to avoid, you know, just loving on your kids. So if you already knew that you had immunity, then you wouldn't have to worry about that. So yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how much you can keep adding to the prenatal panel because you, it could get extensively long, kind of like the genetic screening has now where used to be your screening for from vital tests like sickle cell disease or Tay-Sachs disease or cystic fibrosis. And now the thing has 200 different uh, inborn errors of metabolism on the screening for the parents and, and about a hundred or so for the baby, it gets ridiculous. So I don't know where, you know, what we, the funny thing is we do give like, here's a silly thing. Um, we, we do recommend giving Tdap and flu vaccines to pregnant women for very, 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 very small risk of something happening later on after the baby's born. And we do that, but we don't draw blood to, to see if we could, you know, about CMV or about these other things. So the things we choose to do, we do because that's what's been done for so long. And no, nobody has the incentive or the, the uh, bandwidth to, to decide to go off the reservation, except us, we do. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So before we bring Christine on, I just have to have one little humorous thing here. I got a email this morning and it's from a health a, a health insurance agency um and i wasn't searching for it it's obviously something that they think because i'm 65 or older i might want so i get these ads and this one is for biden care i didn't know there was such a thing as biden care but uh-oh yeah if you if, if you um you can get government subsidies if you qualify and you can get health insurance for as low as one dollar a day Good to know, isn't it? It's good to know. What kind of care are you going to get for $1 a day? But they don't care about that. They just want to get you signed up and take your 365 bucks a year. And uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as Biden care. Now you know. Yeah, I know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of these things coming up at the end of the podcast today, if there's time. But more importantly, let's bring on our guests, Christine, Loria. Why don't you give a little introduction for her? And Christine, if you don't... Okay. Great. Well, welcome, Christine. We're so delighted to have you on the podcast today. One of our listeners knew that I was looking for a midwife who had extensive twin experience um, because I feel like I balance out your perspective as an obstetrician, but I don't have that kind of twin experience to be able to, to discuss that uh, in a deep way. So one of our listeners recommended that we reach out to Christine and she um, generously decided to come and join us. She's a CPM and an LM and has worked internationally for the better part of 20 years. She works with MSF, which is Doctors Without Borders, providing humanitarian aid. She specializes in high-risk obstetrics in low-resource settings. Um, she's in the U.S. a total of a few months out of the year and not currently in, pri in private practice, but when she's home, she does attend births usually to help other midwives with twins or breach. She provides expert testimony in court cases about breach births. She's had attended over 5,000 births, the majority out of hospital, and has attended 516 breaches to date and 387 sets of twins, 
nine sets of triplets. Wow. Um, and is an advocate, staunch advocate for autonomy in women's health and for physiologic birth, which she will relate to us very well. So we, we, we hope she will, because right now we've just lost her. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, she's a, she is in Sudan. And I talked to her a little bit before we started the podcast today. And her bandwidth is really, I guess I would call it narrow. So she okay. just dropped off. Um, okay. She comes well, back. In the meantime, we'll, move, we'll go on to other stuff. And as soon as we see her back, we'll come back to her. That's um, great. Yeah, this is an interesting thing about technology. I, you know what? So what do you think about her experience, though? Oh, Nine? It's, it's amazing. And I was reading her. Oh, I don't want to. I want her to hear this. So I'll, I'll, I'll wait on all that. Okay, fine. Yeah, I want her to get kudos from us because. Okay, fine. What she has done is amazing. And I, I, I don't know how old she is, but 516 breaches, 387 sets of twins, nine sets of triplets. Um, she, she has a story in her, oh God, here we go. I can't, I gotta, I gotta wait. Okay, I gotta <laughs> wait. But I, but I will talk yeah. a little bit since we lost her. I wanna talk about, I, this is gonna come up later in the podcast, but I wanna talk about something that I was listening to yesterday on the Highwire podcast with Dell Bigtree about 5G because 5G has been in the news the last couple of weeks because um, Verizon and AT&T launched their 5G. And I don't really know what 5G is. And, the, and on the podcast, the person he interviews goes through it, uh, megahertz by megahertz, by oscillations, by everything, still can't understand it. It's still right over my head. Yeah. But, but um, uh, there's, there's so many problems that are potential with 5G that are again, being ignored because yeah. of large corporate interests and because yeah. of the regulatory agencies that are supposed to regulate these businesses and protect the consumer are not doing their job. And whether that's in health or with the FCC or the um, uh, uh, any other government agency, I'm trying to think of the other, uh, the uh, NIH or, or um, any government is supposed to look out for the little guy is, is so corrupted yeah. by the money from the big guy that they let these things go. So in a nutshell, because this was going to be part of my lightning round, um, she recommends that, you know, there's not much you can do about 5G and they're actually coming out with little towers that they want to offer people a little bit of money to put in their homes so that they can be in a neighborhood and have a little tower in your own home and what will happen is, um, hang on, she's here. What will happen is, is that you will act as a little tower for your neighborhood and all your neighbor's devices will be coming through your house. And you're, the radiation and the, and the problems that can occur from that and from Bluetooth and from Wi-Fi and people wearing earbuds and people wearing um, Apple watches and stuff, she says, stop it. Stop wearing Apple watches, stop wearing earbuds. Anyway, when you're sleeping, you should be turning off, not just, you're not on airplane mode because your phone is still doing stuff. You need to turn off your Wi-Fi hotspot, turn off your uh, uh, Bluetooth. Don't use, uh, you know, don't use these things right in your bedroom. Don't use your Bluetooth speaker right next to your bed. Um, if you're having, especially if you're having trouble sleeping because there's some things that can, um, can cause problems with sleeping and one of them could be the all this extra radiation and stuff it's very scary and the data that will come out over that that over the next 20 years will also be similar to the data that comes out around how we handled this covid vaccine stuff it'll come out 
when we're older. Okay, she's here. Can you unmute yourself, Christine? There you oh, go. Welcome to South Sudan. This is my life. <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, so Bliss okay. just went through your long introduction. You didn't get to hear yourself introduced, <laughs> but you are tremendous. You're fantastic. You are amazing. <laughs> oh, that's a little disconcerting. Um, no, that's okay. I, I know who I am, so that's, we're good. Well, that's we're well, we're that's, that's excited great. to have you join us. Yeah, can you just tell us, uh, give us a little insight to yourself, since you know yourself so well. <laughs> Um, as to how you end up doing what you're doing and what is it that you're actually doing? Um, well, I um, at the moment, I'm working for uh, Medicine Sans Frontières, MSF, uh, more commonly known in the U.S. as Doctors Without Borders. Um, I've wanted to do humanitarian aid for quite a while, but um, like a couple of decades, because I was starting to get a little bit bored uh, with midwifery in the U.S. and a lot of the constraints and, you know, there's only so much that, well, I mean, you can always learn, but I really, I wanted to really learn um, and see some extreme things and I got what I asked for, um, but I, I couldn't do that right away. My son was still growing up and while I did travel with him different places, um, Africa, Indonesia, he was born actually in Central America and Guatemala, um, but I did take him those places, but those were shorter term and I really wanted to do something um, really longer term that um, had a bigger impact. And so I knew when he turned 18, I was going to apply for um, for a position in the pool with uh, MSF and I did and I was accepted. They don't have that many CPMs, which I am. But um, because I had other out-of-country experience um, in developing countries, um, they took a chance and they brought me on. And uh, so here I am. And I love it. This is my fifth assignment. And um, as I said, I'm in the middle of South Sudan right now. And how long normally when you go, how long are you there? Uh, yeah, most, no, my first assignment was uh, nine months. Um, I'm here for six months. Usually I choose a six month mission and then um, I come home for I don't know, six, eight weeks, whatever. It's been a little different with the pandemic because it's been harder to get visas going in different places. So that that's kind of um, shaken it up a little bit. I was in Afghanistan for six months um, and uh, then I was in, uh, I did a short uh, time in Bolivia and then um, almost six months in Bangladesh and then Mozambique before wow. this mission. Wow. So I really want to get a chance to talk um, specifically about twins and breaches because that's one of the kind of highlights on our podcast because of Stu's experience. But if you could just explain before we jump into that, what is, what is it like when you're there? What, what are your days like? What, what, where are you staying? Like, just give us a brief kind of vision of, of what your life is like practicing as a midwife where you are now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. So right now in um, South Sudan specifically, um, I'm in a, a refugee camp. Um, South Sudan is the newest um, country in the world. Uh, as of 2011, um, they became their own country. Um, it's been a very unstable place since then. And there's been a lot of violence. And so there are a lot of people, about a little over 130,000 living in uh, the largest refugee camp um, in South Sudan. And that's where I am. I, we live in the UN 
compound that's attached to kind of the hospital. We're, we're separate from the UN, but we're basically on their property and we have our own compound. And some of us are in tents if we're shorter term, and some of us are in tukels like I am now, which is just basically a cement hut. Um, there is cold running water. Um, there are pit toilets. Um, it's very miserable when you get any kind of diarrheal illness, which of course you do because that's just what happens here. Um, and uh, it's about 104 degrees uh, in, during the hot part of the day. It's off of the rainy season now. I came at the tail end of rainy season in September, and it actually lasted a little longer than normal. And then the Nile overflowed, and now there's been massive flooding, which you can see really incredible pictures online of. Um, so yeah, and the, but the the hospital is literally, and I use the word in little quotes because it's more like a, a mash unit. You know, it's not a it's not a brick and mortar type thing, but it's right next to our compound. So when they call me on the radio, I have a radio twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and when they call me to come in, um, if I'm not already over there, then I it literally takes me if I walk slowly, maybe two minutes. And if I run, I, I can be there in 45 seconds or so into the maternity unit. So, um, and we do have surgery here. Um, I specifically asked for a placement with a, um, with, um, uh, a hospital that had surgery. The, my previous ones did not. And I wanted to experience, um, this, it's a little bit higher level of care here. So, how, how many, how yeah. Many so yeah, that's basically it. The food's not so bad. Uh, what were you going to say, Jim? I was going to ask you, how, how many of there of of you are there in your team? Oh, okay. So the whole team, um, all of the expats, which include everything from logistics and supply to yes, there's you know doctors. I'm the only expat midwife that works in maternity. There's another one that works in uh, uh, um, sexual and gender based violence. Um, but there are about 20, maybe 25 of us, water and sanitation, all, all the different uh, profiles, of course, human resources, finance. A lot of people think it's just a whole bunch of doctors and nurses hold yeah. up. We can't do any of that stuff unless we have all these other guys. So people don't really understand what it, what it takes. So the majority of the people I'm here with are not medical profiles. So, um, and then I, I oversee a staff of about 15 national staff midwives, and they're all about half my age. Um, more than half of them are men. It's not uncommon in South Sudan and Ethiopia uh, for men to become midwives. Um, so uh, it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite commonplace here. In the, in the 150,000 or so refugees that are there, how many births are you guys doing? in a given, say, month? Okay, so we are a referral hospital. The, um, the uh, refugees are supposed to go to other actors uh, if they're just walking in in labor. Then if there's something going on, like placenta previa or preterm labor or whatever, they get a referral form from them, and then they show up to us. We also get a couple of... Um, uh, a couple of other projects um, where uh, that are not nearby, but they fly patients to us. They're also MSF projects, and they do not have surgery. 
um, and they do not have a higher level of care. So they'll fly people to us. But long story short, about maybe about 70, but they're all referrals. They're all either complicated, high risk in one way or another. Um, so a lot of, of course, twins and breaches, they send us all of those. Um, placenta previous, we had like in November, we had like five or six, like every other person that walked in the door was a previa. And the only thing you can do for that is surgery. Um, so, and that's the, and we only do surgery for maternal indications. So that means that even when we detect fetal distress, it does not matter. We cannot go to OT just because there's fetal distress. Um, it has to be a really majorly obstructed labor or very clear indication like like bleeding like with the previa and so forth. That's wow. a different. So it's different. not that many births, but they're all complicated for the most part. Right. Yeah. For, for our listeners, OT is the operating theater. And we call it the operating room here, but just in case people didn't know what you meant when you said yeah. OT. Um, why do you think there's so many previas or is it just, it's a normal number. You just referral center. So you just get a funnel, they funnel them into you. Yeah. That's yeah. Why. Some of them were flown. to us. Yeah. Some of them were flown from a couple of the other projects. So some of them came from, from there. And, uh, we've had a couple just walk in from the, um, from the camp. Um, and I think it just, you know, it's like we see things in little clusters, um, like like there was a whole week where it's like everybody had preeclampsia or eclampsia. I'm like, are we having a special on this? What's going on? Everybody's having seizures around me. It was awful. Oh. One woman had seven seizures. I mean, that, that's a record for me. I've had two or three um, before, but uh, seven, it was not, it was not pretty. Um, but we have, what we do have a lot of, and I cannot explain is is molar pregnancies yeah I have no I, I idea but that, i'm like Christine, from reading your blog it was one of my questions for you why do you have so many molar pregnancies i don't know if you can figure it out that would be great but i mean is literally it it's like this we been going on for, for years down there no i think i think it's pretty common because none of the midwives are like they all like we'll we'll do a scan and it's like oh yeah look there's them all like they, we're all we're all just fascinated by all of these women walking in with these molar pregnancies and of all different gestations and uh yeah it's really um and, and no two are alike and they're you know it's it's just fascinating but i really wish i knew what why i really just think it is a, a higher than average number statistically yeah, I, um, well, you know I, what? Have I, can, to... I, I haven't had a molar pregnancy in probably 20 years in Los Angeles. Mm. So it's an odd thing. And, I, I, you know, I'm, it's inspired me. I just circled it in green, which means that's something I go research afterwards. So I'll, I'll try <laughs> to find some answers for next week's podcast where I can uh, give a follow up on why that may be happening. Is it nutritional? Is it uh, uh, infectious? Be... There's something going on that uh, causes that yeah. So Christine, you get the call, yeah. you go running over, you've got 45 seconds, you're, you're there with, with a laboring <laughs> person. Um, <clears throat> you explained one of the things that's vastly different already is that we're not going to run into surgery um, purely for the baby. It's more for the maternal uh, indications, which is 
very different Mm -hmm. um, than here. What else, what else is different? How is it when you, when you go into that birth room, what kind of supplies do you have? How, how is it different than what you were experiencing here in the U S that was boring you to tears and having you feel like you needed to go (laughs) off and experience Um, something else? Yeah, we're, we're pretty well equipped with, um, with medications and supplies most of the time they we do have um it's called a rupture which is i think a bad term as a midwife but it's a rupture in supply but if i have to hear that word one more time um anyway we do have ruptures of certain medications at certain times um so um that can be problematic you know with the supply chain especially during covid there were just random things and it's like when are we going to get this we don't know and then you have to just you just have to just deal with a workaround, um, and oftentimes there's not um, it, there's not an easy workaround. Um, but what's different is that I I man so there is no obstetrician here. There's no gynecologist. There's probably no one here. There there are a few um, doctors. There's a pediatrician. There's a, the surgeon, of course. There's probably not anyone here that knows more obstetrical stuff than I do. So that's in one way, it's very like, it's a lot of pressure, like, oh my gosh. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, I got this. I'm going to figure this out. And and I'm the one, I'm making the decisions. I'm not making, and, it, and we have guidelines. And I do have people that I can call an HQ um, advisors when I have a really complicated case, obviously not in the middle, not when I'm at somebody's perineum, but we yeah. get sent cases that are really complex and I have to figure out what the heck to do. And I know kind of what I want to do, but then I have to, because it's not in our guidelines, because it's weird. Um, then I have to, um, you know, I just check with somebody and go, this is what I want to do. What do you think? And then they will come back with, yeah, but you got to take this into consideration and that. So I get to learn a lot and it's really fascinating. Nobody blames me for anything. I'm doing the best I can. And I do have backup support of, um, you know, when some, when a patient comes and she happens to be pregnant, but she has a medical thing going on, then, then I get one of the MDs who deals with that. And then we work together and I do the pregnancy part and they do the, the medical part. Like we have, um, there's an epidemic of hepatitis E right now. And so we have these patients that come in and mm, several of three of them have come in already in with hepatic encephalopathy and they've already been unconscious and they only last a few days, but the patient still needs to be managed and palliative care. And we did have a patient in October that expelled, um, while she was unconscious, you know, um, uh, and the baby was 28 weeks. So the baby is still alive. Um, so yeah, just weird things that you would just never see or do in the U S because you can't, and you wouldn't, and you would transfer because it's the safest thing to do. Um, but here, this is it. The, bu- the buck stops with me. And unless the person is a surgical um, um, candidate, they I don't even talk to the surgeon. But that's the other thing. Like when I, I'll call the surgeon when I know this person needs surgery, I discuss the case with him. A lot of times there's no discussion. I'm like, yeah, well, she's just throwing a whole bunch of clots that will send us right down there. This is her hemoglobin. We already ordered some blood. She needs to go to OT. He's like, okay, get her in there. And that's it. And then other times it's like, well, 
We've been laboring a very long time. This baby's head is asynclitic. Um, we have tried everything. We have even used vacuum. We, we literally pull out all the stops and push it much farther than I ever, ever would in the U.S. Um, not because I shouldn't, but just because in the U.S., but just because I would never want to, because we have cesareans just for these scenarios. So right. there's a fine line between uh, with the with the, the obstructive labors, which aren't are very uncommon, and like I said, they usually happen when the baby's head is really asynclitic and the baby's large. Um, and so, but there's a fine line between deciding to go to OT and waiting, you know, wait, doing a little too soon or waiting a little too late because you want the baby to be in good condition and, but still you have to try everything. So that's, that's tricky. But our cesarean rate, it's like 5%. I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's not very high at all. Which, which I always say is about what it should be, should be about 5%. There's probably about 5% of babies that are moms that actually need a cesarean. So it lines up with my perspective. Yeah, and, Chris, and Christine, in, in 1970, United States, the C-section rate was 5%. So there that's you go. fascinating piece there of that. Do, 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 the, do the, the, the women that come in, um, have they had prenatal care? Are they just, do they just come in when they think they're in labor? Uh, is it a mix? Do you have ultrasound ability? Um, I know you've done a lot of twins and, um, and breaches and even a, even nine sets of triplets. And so did you know in advance when they came in that they had three babies in there? Um, yeah, um, I did. So a lot of the women do get prenatal care. We, um, you know, there are a lot of good campaigns by all the uh, by other actors, um, IRC and, you know, just different uh, different actors that really send out um, health promoters to promote prenatal care. So women do on average, uh, anywhere between two and four visits. Um, But there are some that have gotten none and they just walk in and it's a big surprise what, you know, what you're dealing with. Um, We do have one ultrasound, a little portable ultrasound that lives in in maternity. And, uh, and so I am able to do them when I want to. I, I love using my, when it's not urgent, when somebody's not bleeding and I don't have to figure some riddle out, I almost always prefer to use my hands and just, cause I never want to lose that skill. And I like showing, you know, the national staff too, like, please don't, don't determine presentation with, with the ultrasound first. You can use it if you want, but please palpate with your hands first, because I don't want you to lose the skill and, and rely. I said, because this ultrasound, it's going to break one day and then you're going to be like, oh no. So you want to always be able to do it. And um, the same thing with the twins. And, um, but yeah, we're able to, to do ultrasound and, and diagnose uh, multiple pregnancies. Most of the time I, I palpated belly and I'm like, oh, there's another baby in there. And then I do an ultrasound and I'm like, oh, yep, there's another head. So um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's nice that we have that, but I don't try to, I don't rely on it too much, but it is super useful, um, with anomalies. We get, we also have a lot of women with polyhydramnios and oftentimes it's because something's up with the baby and it's really nice to be able to see that and see what you're dealing with. Um, yeah. because it's got to come out somehow. So great. Yeah. Can I, so, oh, go ahead. You go ahead, Bliss. 
Okay. I was going to say, I, I really want to hear about, I want to hear how you manage, I like the logistical, like, things of how you manage breaches and twins. Because I'm, I'm really curious from a midwifery perspective, you have tons of experience. And um, I consider them a variation of normal. I don't know if you know, here in California, um, about five or six years ago, they took away our ability uh, California licensed midwives to be able to attend breaches and twins. So women are forced to um, go into the hospital and usually have to get a C-section, which is very frustrating for me that um, women don't have a choice. Um, Dr. Fishbein specializes in breaches and twins and does home deliveries. Um, but, you know, he's one guy in Southern California um, and not everybody can afford him. So uh, there's, we have a lot of, um, listeners from all over the country and some across the world. Um, so we'd love to love to hear your perspective on physiologic twins and breaches. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm in your camp and I, I just think that, uh, it, I think that surgery should never be the first option for either of those. Um, things and uh, regardless of uh, the position of baby a or b or regardless of is the head flexed or not flexed with the breach and the, all of these things people ask me these questions all the time what if the what if you see that the head is not flexed i'm like i don't see anything i palpate with my hands babies move all the time like <laughs> it's going to be born there the uterus is going to push it down the, the head's going to stay deflexed the whole time well if it does then i'll deal with it when we get it down there like i don't these things, I just don't, um, I just don't worry about it too much. I, there are other indications if things are going south, um, during a breach and because, so I, obviously I'm going to be a little more conservative in the U S because just, we all know why. Um, and so, but here, because we don't do surgery for multiple pregnancies or breach, I have to deal with whatever is in front of me. So really, it doesn't matter what position the baby is in. I have to deal with it at, at, at the time. I just have to deal with whatever is coming. And I have to get creative sometimes. Um, but like like a, a, a twin B that's transverse, oh, I see it all the time. That Most of the time, they just turn, you know, vertex or breach, usually vertex. Most of the time they just turn. I had one that did not. Um, maybe I guess it was last month, early last December. Um, it just did not want to turn. And I tried to uh, even turn externally. And I'm like, what is up with you? It just didn't want to. So I just popped the water bag and went in and just did an extraction because time was ticking and the, the heart rate was like, mm, I'm not liking this so much. And I wanted an alive baby. We don't have a, we have a neonatal unit here, but I use the term loosely. There aren't incubators. There's no intubation. There's nothing like that. So we have antibiotics and we have some oxygen that we can put on the baby and we can put an NG tube in and that's pretty much it. So mm -hmm. the babies really need to be in the best condition they can be in. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I did that. I don't usually, I don't do a lot of, um, extractions like that but it's also good um teaching for the um for the staff here um it's good for them to learn um new skills so 
I just also consider it a teaching moment. So if you're, this is, I'm going to try and reiterate what you said. Um, from your perspective, these are variations of normal and you are going to give those women because of your resources, but let's just say that this is the way that you're practicing. If you didn't have all of the limitations that are happening in America that make us practice defensively, you trust that, that these babies are going to work it out, that nature is going to navigate these babies to be able to come out safely. Um, what do you see? Do you see when you don't interfere and you allow these babies to just come through? Are you seeing complications? How often are you having to step in? Like, what are you, what are you noticing in the way that you get to manage there in terms of how breaches and twins navigate this process? Yeah, you know, I, I never interfere unless or until I, I have to. Most of the time, the women are in some variation of an upright position just because I'm like, yeah, I don't want you on that table. <laughs> and, and, but the, every once in a while, like I'll get called in the middle of the night, somebody will have walked into maternity and the, the midwife gets them up on the table to do an exam. They discover it's breached. They call me on the radio. I walk in, there's something coming out already, you know, like there's a foot or there's a little bit of a butt or something. And I won't, have them move. And the reason is because I still want to be able to um, practice any supine maneuvers that I might need. I still keep my hands off. But if there's a supine maneuver that needs to be done, then I will, um, I get a chance to practice that and get a chance to show um, the staff um, also how, you know, how the maneuvers are done. So I, I never want to learn because I, I deal with the, the upright uh, breaches and those interventions, they're just a little bit different maneuvers. As you know, you're coming from a different angle and everything is different. Um, but I rarely have to intervene, um, every once in a while, but, oh man, I just lately I have, I had a, um, a preterm, um, like severely preterm, like 23 weeks, I think, um, baby, so the woman had malaria and UTI, um, which are both, it's a combination for disaster for preterm labor. So this woman came in and there was no stopping this labor and she had both of these things going on. And so this little baby was going to be born, which was unfortunate. But, and I think I wrote about this on my blog, but this baby was tiny, as you can imagine, you know how big 23 weeks, 23 weekers are. So these little tiny feet came out and then you know, the little tiny spindly legs and then the, butt. but this baby, this tiny baby probably could have just plopped right out. Right. You imagine it just, they just plop up. No, this baby did every, every little breech maneuver that, that you see a term baby do. It was so fascinating to watch it go from, from um, transverse and then uh, anterior. And then the one little shoulder came down then and the arm and then the other one. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's doing all the maneuvers. It was really incredible to see that tiny little baby maneuver the pelvis in the exact same way. And it's stuff like that, that after 33 years, if I can get excited about something like that, I mean, that, that just really delighted me to see that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just stuff that you wouldn't normally know or see, and then just other things that you think you can't be done. And then they are like, um, I many, a number of times now I've had, um, prolapsed cord with breach. And I always say prolapsed cord, 
is always an emergency, except, <laughs> except sometimes when there's a breach and it's dangling down between the legs. And if it's not being occluded, it can be fine. And every single one that I've had do that, I have not had any issues with it at all. And I've, I had one in Bangladesh where the cord and the feet were dangling outside um, of the vagina at home and they transferred in. By the time I got there, it had been an hour and a half. Wow. And the baby was in perfectly good condition. We finally started to push because she wasn't pushing at that time because wow. there were just feet and a cord. And you could see the cord was blue and beautiful. And then you could also listen to the heart tones. I'm like, yeah, we're good. And wow. then the midwives were like, oh, are you going to help us? And I'm like, no, you just wait. She'll tell you when she's pushing. And so the, all of these things that you think aren't possible or think could be disastrous, and then you see that they, they really are um, actually possible or they can be. I'm not saying there's always, um, you know, there never will be a, a time when that's um, an emergency, but the ones that I've seen, I, I don't, I just don't worry about the cord coming out with the, with the legs um, so much. Christine, yeah. I think point. Stu has a question for you. Hi, Christine. Can you yeah. Hear me? Okay, good. Um, yeah. Yeah. We just did on a podcast uh, about a month ago, we had um, a first twin breach twin where the cord fell out while, you know, when she was on the bathroom, on the toilet. And, um, you know, I felt the same way you did. It's, you know, it's always an emergency except incomplete breaches and stuff. It's often not an emergency. Fortunately, she was completely dilated. The difference for me was that I, I didn't have the knowledge that you have of just sitting and waiting. So even mm -hmm. though the heart rate was fine, I did a breach extraction on the, on the first twin because mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that. So it's been lightning to hear. I don't know that we could always do those things here in the United States that you could probably do in South Sudan, but, but, um, I, right. I you know, I was trained to know that yes, cord prolapse is an emergency, except sometimes in breaches, it can fall through because there's space to fall through and it doesn't necessarily mean it's an absolute emergency. So thank you. But for I think, I think right. the point, the point of, 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 uh, what fascinates me, Stu, is what you just said is like, you know, Christine's experience comes out of because she is in a situation where her resources are limited and she doesn't she's the expert so she gets to make these decisions and she doesn't have the same pressures that we have in the state no, there, there's no but, monday morning quarterbacking in, in, in right right but what's happening with birth okay so we talk about like what happens with the mammalian model and how you know, we're so disconnected from that. Well, we also have these cultural conversations that affect how we manage birth. So if we're always going towards how it's done in the States, we never get to see what's possible. So that's why I'm always fascinated right. to, to learn more about like, what is birth like when it really is left alone for whatever reason, what really happens? Um, so I think those things are fascinating to hear. Like, You've had enough experience to be able to trust those things in these um, in these situations that you can pass that wisdom along. So you know what time it is, Bliss? It's time to talk about boobies. Yeah, it's time to talk about one of our good sponsors, Bamboobies, who we love dearly. One, we love them because they sponsor us. <laughs> but two, yes. because they have great organic products. Right. And we're not going to have any sponsors that we can't stand behind what they do. So we love them for that. 
Yeah, I wish we had like a beer sponsor. <laughs> I don't drink beer, but you do. <laughs> no, I know. No, because I, I mean, Bamboobies is great stuff, but it's not products for Dr. Stu, put it that way. It's products yeah. for products for our listeners, but that's products for the bump, breastfeeding, and beyond. They like to say, so yeah, it's, you know, they 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 focus really on comfort for moms, uh, both physically and emotionally, and they have great products. I mean, we've we've talked in the past about their nursing pads and nursing bra, and you can mention a little bit about that in a second. But we also talk about um, some of their organic products, including their organic nipple balm, which is one hundred percent organic. It's non-toxic. You don't have to wipe it off before you have breastfeed the baby. Um, it makes breastfeeding more comfortable for the mom. And it's got natural ingredients, including extra virgin olive oil, beeswax, shea butter. You know, I love stuff with shea butter in it, too. It's actually really good for you. Yeah. Even if you buy, I do. <laughs> and, uh, there's no lanolin, or, and it's made in the USA. So tell us a little bit about the, the nursing stuff. Well, they have um, the nursing pads that I've talked to you about that I really love. They're the number one sustainable nursing pad in a wonderful heart shape made with bamboo renewable um, as a renewable source. And the reason they do that heart shape is so that you it's not so visible. Those of you who have worn um, breast pads, nursing pads, you know that you can see them through your clothes and it's it's not cute. So that's the reason for the heart-shaped design and it works so well. And then they've got a really great, um, also made with bamboo, um, stylish racerback nursing bra that can be used in your wardrobe that has a little clasp and you can um, breastfeed wherever you're at. So check them out. They're great. They're great for the environment. They're great for mamas. And um, tell them about the discount codes too. Yeah, they go if you go to bamboobies.com and you put in the code instincts, that's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S, you get uh, 25% off your purchase. And so we would hope that you'll support them. Um, we are going to encourage them to come out with a organic beer. And uh, then I'll be really encouraging you to uh, support them. No, it's <laughs> support them because they support us and they make the, the um, possibility of our podcast um, go. And making great products. So thanks, Bamboobies. Thanks, Bamboobies. I just want to say that, that uh, to our listeners that Christine has a blog and we'll put it up in the show notes and you've got to go there and you've got to read it because not only... Does she have great information in there? But she writes in a way that's exciting. It's almost like you can't wait to turn the page because there's love it. The, yeah, the stories are great. And and you, you you said one more thing about breach. You said that recently you had a uh, compound breach presentation. Do you want to just give like a couple sentences? Oh, yeah. Oh my God! Yes, that was like the most exciting thing that's happened since I was here. I was in COVID <laughs> isolation with a, a patient that had COVID. Like like she was sick with COVID coughing and stuff. So I had all my PPE on. It's 104 degrees, miserable, right? And I'm like, I just got to ignore that. I couldn't, I was alone um, because I didn't want any of my staff to come in there. The more people exposed to COVID, whatever. So anyway, and they're not, you know, any, I just went in there alone with the woman. So she's lying on the bed because of course she's not going to be upright because she's sick. And I was fine with that. She was like a gravita five. And, uh, and I knew the baby was breech. Um, and you could see that it was breech. You could see the little head up at the top. Like she wasn't very, 
Um, she was thin, so I could see very easily. And uh, I couldn't communicate with her. Uh, so I just spoke English and just, I figured, well, birth, it, it's a universal language. I knew it wasn't going to be a problem for me. And she was just going to spit the baby out because she was, if she was a P-prom, she had come in um, with a preterm um, premature rupture. So she was like 32, 33 weeks. So it was a little baby. I'm like, this won't be a problem. So eventually she's lying there and she starts, I know she's starting to push because her legs start to spread. I'm like, okay, great. And then I, you know, make sure I have my gloves. I am all ready. And I wasn't expecting to have to do anything at all. And then, so then I see these, like these little tiny, like little digit, like, and I'm like, oh, there's the toes. I, I wasn't checking her or anything because I, there was no reason to, she was just laboring and the baby was just going to come when it was ready. So, but then it got, it started to come out more and more. There were these really long, I'm like, what? That's a hand. What, what, when did the baby turn? What, like, I've been sitting here the whole time. How did this baby maneuver to like, whatever it's doing? Like I thought transfer. I'm like, I could still see the head up at the top. What is going on? And I'm like, and then I said to her, no, no, no. Cause I, what I was going to do with it. Push the hand back. I took the hand. I was just going to push it in and reposition the baby. I'm like, this is a small preterm baby. I'm just going to be able to, you know, turn it into another way. It didn't bother me, but so I'm pushing it back in. And then there's something else in there. I'm like, what is that? Is that like a short? What the heck is that? And then she's trying to pull my hand away and yelling at me. And then she gives another big push. And then the hand comes out like past the wrist. And then I'm, and then this other thing is coming and I'm like, well, whatever's coming is coming and somehow, and I don't, and then I looked really again. And then the other part of it came and then I could see right in the middle, a little tiny black dab of meconium. And I'm like, that's a butt. Like, oh my God. And so I just took my hands away and I just watched as this baby came out more and more than the little one little leg came out another leg, but the, the baby had its arm behind its back with its palm up. And so the, the hand came down below the butt. So the hand presented first and then the butt. And then the rest of the baby just came sliding right out. I just watched it again, maneuver through the pelvis, just as easy as can be. And I was like, oh my God, I had so much adrenaline after that birth because I was so excited. I'm still excited. Yeah, I have never, point. because I mean, I have not, nobody's ever told me that they've had a hand presentation of a breach before. Like, yeah, I, I had on? not heard that, Christine. I had not heard that, and it's interesting because you just gave every physician in America a heart attack. All right? <laughs> but you, you are excited by it, and so am I. Actually, and Bliss was—you just see Bliss's face while you're telling this story. It was, oh, maybe you could actually—you could probably see us. But yeah, but, um, yeah, it was a great story. So I, I wanted you to give the story because that's where we are. But let's move. Let's go ahead, Bliss. Ask about twins. Great. I love it. Thanks for, thanks for interjecting that. So tell us, okay, so doesn't matter the position you're going to just give this woman the trial of labor and you actually have triplet experience, which is so cool. Um, <clears throat> what, what do you see with bleeding? What do you see with, you know, cause there's an increased risk of hemorrhage. So what do you see? How do you manage bleeding? Um, what do you do in terms of the, you know, interval? So how long do you wait um, for the second, and I have a feeling, I know, but I'd love to hear you talk about it. Um, how often are you breaking bags on twins or triplets? Um, you know, just tell us how you manage that and what you're seeing in all of your experience. I'd love to hear. Okay. Um, 
Well, so here I, again, just like anything else, I manage a little bit differently um, for a couple of different reasons than I would in the States. So basically all the women here are high risk for one reason or another. Um, and it's not just, oh, she's having twins. She's high risk. She's probably a grand mall tip. She's probably, you know, all of these other things. So our guidelines and protocols with MSF are always to put um, two cannulas in. We don't necessarily have an IV running, but we have two in, in yeah. the event we need to uh, transfuse. I can, the women here, the average hemoglobin is about eight. And we frequently see hemoglobins of five or six. And you know what? We go, oh, six. Okay, we're good. <laughs> if you can imagine. Now, in the United States, I would never say that. But here, yeah. if it gets below six, then we transfuse. Um, but if it's above six, oh, we'll send them home postpartum. It's not a problem. And they're not symptomatic. So um, many of them. But because a lot of these women um, do come in with, you know, low hemoglobins and they can tend to bleed more with twins, we are prepared um, with the two uh, cannulas. I have not seen very much bleeding at all here um, with twins. I really have not. Um, maybe a little bit more than than uh, with uh, with singletons, but not so much. Not not. I have not any of the really bad hemorrhages I've managed here have been from the outside coming in, referred from another place. Um, they have not been ones that we have actually had um, here. Uh, you know, they were they were moderate bleeds um, at best. Um, so. So yeah, I think we take pretty good precautions in terms of waiting. Um, yeah, I don't care what position the babies are in. Um, um, I have last week I had breech breech. Um, they both actually they were both complete and they both came out, you know, with dropped feet. I don't consider those footlings. Some people call that footling, but it's it's not. If they're complete, if their hips are flexed and they drop a foot or two feet, it's just a complete with dropped feet. But both of them came out exactly the same way. Um, yeah, and, uh, the first one's breach and the second one's, you know, head down. I don't worry about that either. I have had a couple of times where I had to go in and, uh, untangle. Uh, that wasn't fun. One, I kind of thought I would have to, and, uh, because the babies were facing each other, I could feel that. And, um, the first one was breach. Um, and the other two, I wasn't prepared for it, but I mean, I'm always prepared for it, but I wasn't thinking it was going to be a problem. And then, yeah, then it was. So then I dealt with it. Um, and, um, and what was your other question before, about before that? Before you move on um, to the other oh, how long do I wait Christine, the interval? Christine, before you yes. move on to the other question, I wrote a paper on, uh, on, um, uh, entangled heads, entangled heads. Thank you, Bliss. And, yeah. and I, you know, I did a maneuver that I was able to untangle the two heads. What, when you say that I was able to cope with that, or I was able to deal with that, what did, can you just say in a nutshell, what you use your hand, what do you do? And how did you know it was a problem? That's my other oh, question. Yeah. When did you know that you needed to intervene? Yeah. There was a rest of descent and I knew that that other head was low. You could actually see it. The, the the vertex baby was kind of moving down with the twin baby. I'm like, this isn't good. And, uh, and I'm like, uh. but I was prepared, like I said, because for this one, because they were facing each other. I'm like, okay, I have to have, I have to be ready for this. And um, 
so basically, uh, when there was the arrest um, of dissent, I knew that they literally did have their chins locked. Sometimes it's just the the heads, both of the heads are in the way, but they literally had the one chin on the other. So I basically, um, it's just hard. I just do whatever I need to in the moment. It's not like I have a specific, like, I'm going to do this. It just all depends on the position of the babies. This is for breach or for for just anything that I do. But I um, disimpacted the, the baby a bit. I pushed the, the baby up. I ha, um, I used um, prayer hands, like Rixa calls it. And, uh, and I pushed the baby up um, just a bit. And then I... Um, and then I took my uh, right hand and I went up next to the the vertex baby and I just um, I just turned the head a little bit. Um, I just rotated the head toward the spine, toward the mother's spine, um, because I knew which way the baby was facing. And I just rotated the head just um, just a bit. And then I kind of kept my hand there. So it didn't, um, so it didn't turn back and waited for a contraction And the, as, as had the mother push. And as she pushed, she pushed the baby down and kind of pushed my hand out. And I, I slipped my hand out along with it. And then the baby, the second baby, the first baby came out just fine. Um, after that, it was just because they weren't huge. Um, and once I, I got that head out of the way, um, that worked. And that was maybe all of, I don't know, it was between contractions. It was probably less than a minute. It wasn't very long. Um, so that and that seemed question? to work. Thank you, thank you for um, saying, thank you for saying that. I mean, it's so reinforcing to hear a completely, somebody who's completely unaware of the experience that I had and what I wrote, I wrote down on a paper and you described essentially a little bit different, but almost essentially what I did, essentially what I said was what you just said is that my familiarity with breach and twin delivery gave me the knowledge of the spatial relationships to solve the problem. And that's yeah. what you did. Right. Yeah. 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 It's intuitive at some point, right? It's just body. It's just muscle memory and body. Like, yeah, the spatial relationship. Yeah. Know it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Intervals. Absolutely. Tell us about intervals and, and, and uh, how long you wait and any of that. Yeah, no, I, I just wait. We, of course, we listen to the baby. And like I said, I told you about the, the breach extraction I did last uh, last month. And that was because the baby was getting wonky. I couldn't get it to not be transverse. There really wasn't. Uh, I mean, like I said, we're not going to go to the, of the OR because, because the baby's transverse. Um, so um, I didn't wait as long as I normally would have. I I could have maybe, if the heart tones had been better, I probably would have waited longer and seen if some of the contractions just, you know, eventually rotated the baby one way or another. But because they were getting a little funky, um, I, I just didn't want to wait anymore. And, you know, the result was we have two okay babies. So um, it's it was okay, I think, to intervene in that regard. But yeah, you know, I've waited hours um, in between uh, before. Um, sometimes contractions peter out and then they, you know, then they come back sometimes. Um, and then, well, they, they come back and then usually the labor starts up again. I remember being called into one, uh, one labor, one time the first baby came and then the, the, this wasn't here. This was in Sierra Leone. And uh, they didn't call me for the birth, but they called me because she said, uh, it's been eight hours and the second baby's not coming. And I'm like, 
okay, well, what are you doing? Nothing. It was a multip. I, I walked in, I checked and I'm like, well, the head's right there. And so is a bulgy water bag. <laughs> if you want the baby to go to eight hours, okay, it's okay to break the bag. So we did. And of course the baby came. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, but I don't, don't usually break the, the bags. I've had two sets of twins um, just a couple weeks ago. Um, one right after the, like a couple days uh, at, after the first one, I had the second set and they were all, all four of them were born in the call. All four of them came out in these little balloons right into my hands. It was so cool. Even the breech ones, they're all curled up. And I love seeing that. And it's so easy. Those breeches come out so easy when they're encased in the bag. But I did nothing. I did nothing with either of these women. One was a primate even. So the mm. bags here are tough. They're really strong. I've seen more babies born in the call here like then in such a short period of time than any place ever. I just, and sometimes we even try to break the water for some of the patients for, for certain things. And it's like, it's really hard to break. So they're just universally very strong here. Again, I don't know why, because the nutrition is not good. So. Yeah. That's very interesting that it's probably has something to do with a bigger reason than what we believe protects the baby yes. you know yeah it's protecting I the baby. agree yes Christina, Jim. Christina Christina I have a couple questions um quickly quickly um about what average gestational age do your twins come uh, I know that they probably come a little earlier there probably all babies come a little earlier there maybe but but do you uh, uh you know and we don't induce and we don't uh, our practice we don't either but I'm just curious as to what typically would be the gestational age of your twins that come in? Because I noticed that some of them in your blog were pretty small. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the babies, the babies generally are small. Like the average weight of a baby here, a term baby is like 2.5 kilos. So, I mean, they're small. Um, they're uh, just, be, just because, again, nutrition and stuff like that. If we have a four kilo baby, that's a big baby. Like we're like, wow, this baby's big. And then in the United States, we would never say that. It would just be an average size baby. Well, not so, no. wait, 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 wait. I have but, to stop. Yeah. I have to stop you there. The average OB, once again, people know who listen to us. The average OB yeah. would think that that's massive and yeah. maybe we should induce you or do a C-section <laughs> because your baby's 4,000. <laughs> that's true. You're right. You're right. I'm, I'm just thinking about my home birth friends. They wouldn't even oh, no, think the second thing about it, but... <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so but yeah, most days? of them are, yeah, most of them are term or close to term. Absolutely. Um, they most probably of them don't do. and know the, ones the weeks. That, yeah. Well, that's probably right? true. How well do you know yeah. their gestational age? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's really unusual here in South Sudan because women actually do know their last periods or at least the month. Um, and they know their own ages. And in other places I've been in Africa, they have no idea what their age is, or they'll give some random age and you look at them and you're like, you are not. And, uh, and then, um, and they know their last periods and it's just so wonderful <laughs> to, to, um, to have that piece of information. So we are um, most of the time able to um, kind of calculate we also have ultrasound, but I, I don't use that so much for dating, really. But really, once the babies come out, it's pretty easy to see, you know, if they were 
if they were, you know, if they're all scrawny or if they are term, you can, you can just tell, but yeah, most of them are, are at least 37, 38 weeks, the majority and in other places in Africa as well. Yeah. Well, I listen and then, and then, um, Again, referring to your blog, I want people to go there and read your story about uh, twins times three. But um, I got a funny that I, yesterday I got a question from a listener. This is shortly after reading your blog. And this is from Adrian, and I'm not sure what country she's from, but she says, "Is a C-section definitely necessary for mono mono twins?" Right. And and you know where I'm going with this, Christine, <laughs> because I just read your blog. So yeah. why don't you answer that question? Thank you, Stu. The answer is apparently not always. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had, as you know, I had mono mono twins not too long ago here. Um, and I didn't even know they were until they came out. Cause again, I don't, I don't investigate all that much with ultrasound. I kind of want to just see, okay, there's no big anomalies. There's not a previa. There's not, okay, we're good. I really don't do these in-depth, you know, and measure the pockets of fluid and all of that. Um, just because I don't want too much information, it makes me more nervous. <laughs> Honestly, it really does. So I just like what, because what I'm going to get is what I'm going to get anyway. And I'd rather not be nervous about it and then have nothing come to pass, you know, anyway. So some stuff I do like to know. I had a, a baby, uh, it was, it was preterm, but it had a gross anomaly of the, um, of the abdomen. And you could see, I thought, that looks like gastroschisis, except for that you could see the top of the the baby's belly. There was a clear delineation. So I knew it was like all basically ascites. And so then that's what made all those, um, all the intestines look like they were, like it was gastroschisis floating around. So I knew then when that baby, again, that baby was also breech. Um, no, no, was it? No, I think it was not. I think that baby did come vertex, but like it came, it was born to like the arms, the nipples. And then, then I had to do all these maneuvers just to get this gigantic belly out. And fortunately it was preterm. So, um, but uh, yeah, so that was good to know that this baby had this anomaly because otherwise I would have been like, what is going on? Why can't I get this little tiny baby out of this woman? Um, So with the, with the mono twins, I did not really know until the placenta came out. And then I'm like, I'm looking and then I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. It was really cool. And I was very excited and they were really healthy and yeah, they were definitely full term. They were some of the biggest twins I think that I've had since I've been here. Um, but yeah, healthy and normal and fine. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's, that's fascinating. It's obviously it's not something that in this country would ever happen because the, the uh, chronicity of twins is going to be determined early because everybody gets ultrasounds here in, in America. And when you find out they're mono mono twins, they're being monitored unbelievably uh, intensely for TTTS. And, yeah. and then they're often hospitalized at about yeah. 27 or 28 weeks. And they're just kept in the hospital until they get to about 33 weeks and then they're sectioned. And that's pretty much the standard of care here. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't be doing that because I'm sure that there are you may have come across some TTTS or losses or, or people, women that come in with problems mm-hmm. where both babies are, have passed away or one, or at least one of the two has passed away or something. Um, yeah. But uh, it, is, it is fascinating to know that in a world where sometimes you don't have technology, you don't have that, that nature, sometimes does it right anyway. 
most of the time. Yep. Yep. Even in something as as rare, and you listed it being like one in 30,000 or something like that, rare for mono mono twins. So pretty cool. Well, I think think the, the midwife wisdom for today is what Christine said is sometimes the more you know, you get nervous. And you're going to get what you're going to get. So the best thing that we can do is move forward with trust and love in our hearts and, and supporting with our hands the best way that we know how and, um, and giving people choice, which, you know, that's different than your practice, Christine, but it's something that we keep having to come back to here in the States is that women deserve the right to choose what they do with their bodies and how they deliver their babies. Um, so it's just giving us a, a broader perspective of what's possible. And so I so appreciate you coming on. I feel like we could ask you questions and hear stories and talk for hours. Um, and I'm grateful to the, to the internet gods that you were able to <laughs> come back on with us and get such clear reception so we could hear you share. And um, I hope that I can meet you someday. I'd love to to be able to um, do similarly to what you're doing at some point in my life. And um, I'm definitely on this, this uh, journey right now of getting to meet midwives who have, you know, knowledge and experience to pass down because it's, it's so important. Like you were talking about, don't lose the skill of palpating, you know, don't lose it. Cause what if the zombie Mm -hmm. apocalypse comes and, you know, we're going to (laughs) be, we're going to be really popular. (laughs) <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. no that's great and i hope i get to meet you as well um yeah. are you going to the midwifery wisdom conference uh in i will be there in november i'm my topic is um humanitarian aid from a midwifery perspective and then i'll be also doing the skills and drills um with rixa on the breach simulators so i'll be there where, awesome. where, where is, is it? it Texas. Of course, oh. it is in Texas in November, <laughs> Galveston, Texas. I'll look into yeah. it. I'll yeah, look into I, it. I will too. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna wrap up, but thank you just, so much. You can drop off if you want to. No, say no, don't, Christine. Stay for one more second. I just want to say my goodbye real quickly. Um, I wrote down a couple of things. I wrote down that I love your quote. I deal with whatever's in front of me. Yeah. And I think that that's also a, a midwifery wisdom thing for today is you, you know, you take what nature gives you and then you figure out what to do with it. So why don't you tell, can you tell people um, what the email ad, or the uh, web address of your blog is? Oh, sure. It is um, midwifewithoutboundaries.wordpress.com. Okay. So midwifewithoutboundaries.wordpress.com. Love and it. You got, and if you our yep. listeners go there, you're going to hear. Well, you're not going to hear. You're going to you're going to read uh, about a heroic storytelling person who's innovative, doing God's work, and is still excited about birth and gets to do birth without the Monday morning overlords telling her that she can't do that or she shouldn't do that. So, in some ways, you are a you are a heroic figure for me, and and something that you know I'm looking for a next phase in my life um i'll be talking to you christine yay (laughs) i love it yay so thank you thank you so much thank you so much for inviting me this has been so fun it's just like having a conversation with friends i loved it 
Exactly. Well, you're 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 now in our in our tribe. So welcome. Thank you for sharing. That yeah, was great. We, we ran out of time. I got a whole bunch of stuff. So I guess I'll just save whatever's relevant for next week. Okay, great. Um, yeah. In the meantime, I'm about ready to start getting busy with births again. I, I have right now I have six, possibly seven in March. So wow. I know. And I'm going out with a bang, which is going to be great. But uh nonetheless, this was great. I don't know how I can't remember how you came across Christine. How did you come across? One of our listeners sent recommended her. She was um a midwifery preceptor, I think, for her. Well, I, I bow down to our listener who got us connected to her because there's a reason these things happen. And you said in one of our recent podcasts about finding the positive and everything. And yeah, uh, there's some positive here for me. And I don't know that I'll end up in South Sudan or anyplace else doing this, but the, I, the dream, I always often say that I was born a century too early. Oh, excuse me, too late. Sorry. Late. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too late. Oh, I spoiled that. I spoiled this allegory, but um, because I would like to practice in a way where, where I'm free to, do what's, what I think is best, what my training tells me is best without the fear of what people in authority who really can't hold a candle in skill to what you do are telling yeah. you what to do. Yeah. And uh, that's the world we live in right now. And uh, yeah. Okay. So people understand. Let's take, let's take the show on the road, Stu. I'm in. Let's do it. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Do you Seriously. think uh, you think they have one of these places in Fiji? <laughs> I don't know. Let's look. Yeah. I think well, I, I might I, be going to Bali in March. Yeah, see, Bali would be that. fine because the idea of, of going to do this is very appealing to me, but not when you have to sit and record a podcast in mosquito netting when it's 104 degrees outside and you have to wear a hazmat suit because someone has COVID and you're sweating beyond belief. If you read her blog, you'll see that within 15 minutes she was drenched, but she decided not to take the gear off because if she takes the gear off, it wastes money because then she'd have to put new gear on. So because they have to think in that way, it's yeah. it's a fascinating way. All the things that we think about that are important are really not important when you, yeah. when you boil it down. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we, you know, we need to just keep thinking outside of our little paradigm because when you do that, when you think outside of the paradigm, um, whether it's politics or religion or cultural or where you live, like you get locked into this way of thinking and we just have to keep opening that up, keep taking off those boundaries because then you can see that there's a lot more possible in life. So I'm glad you enjoyed her. Immensely. Thank you, Bliss. You're welcome. Okay. See you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 